Hey, Crossroads, can't believe I'm back in Israel. We're with an amazing group from Texas. Also, uh, people from Crossroads are having a blast. And uh, the last three, four days, uh, we've been looking at the life of Jesus, namely his ministry, just immersing ourselves in it, and primarily looking at uh, this small little region on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee where so much of Jesus' ministry took place and how he's raising up these disciples and sending them out. And today, actually, though, we looked at the ways in which Jesus is training them by breaking out of uh, that small local area and, and going to places uh, like Caesarea Philippi and over here into the Decapolis, uh, this Greco-Roman place that in their day they saw as just this untouchable, unclean, uh, evil, demonized place uh, where really Jewish people were forbidden to go. And yet Jesus is going to these places. And uh, so in the next little bit, uh, you guys are going to be looking at this great text, Mark chapter 5. And um, yeah, I mean, I was looking at our schedule. Uh, someone backed out and I was trying hard to fill it in. And then I just realized, oh my goodness, we're going to be right at the very spot where Mark 5 took place. And so I thought, all right, um, I'll do this. And so it's been a lot of fun. I'll see you guys soon uh, next week. Who lives over there in that northern shore? The triangle. Sometimes we called it the uh, the Orthodox Triangle. Towns like Capernaum, Bethsaida, Koritzin, Magdala. These are all these these Jewish people that that have come back. They've done Aliyah. Uh, before the time of Jesus, when the land was free, kind of like today, and they're forming these new cities, and they're passionate about God, they're passionate about Torah, it's what we might call the Bible Belt, probably Herodians and secular Jews live in the capital city, but especially over here in Decapolis, where Alexander the Great planted cities, and then Rome, when they take over, this is where they feel at home. This is where they live. So Liv, I'm gonna have you read. This story is found in three of our gospels. It's Mark chapter five, but it actually begins at the end of Mark chapter four. Give me Mark 4, 35. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Okay. We would just read that and say, on that day, blah, blah, blah. It's that day. I mean, 30 years later, when, when the disciples have a reunion together, they're probably like, do you remember that day? Remember that day when, when Jesus let, like said, hey, let's, let's go over to the other side? I want you to now feel the weight, though, of that simple statement. It's not just going from that side of the lake over to this side of the lake. It's not even going from where things over there are made simply towns and villages are 
made of that black basalt rock, mud, to over here where things are brilliant, spectacular, made of marble. I mean, this is the city set on a hill. But it's more than just to the simple eye. It's a whole different worldview. It's a whole different lifestyle. So Libby, read verse 1 of chapter 5. And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. So, the Gerasenes. Scholars don't know what to do with this. Some think he's referring to the Roman city Gadara. Others think maybe it's the Roman city Jerash. But the problem with both those options, Gadara is 30 miles from here. Jerash is 50 miles from here. It's the Catholic scholar Bargio Pixner who lived in the land. He actually suggested the thing that I think makes sense of the Gerasenes, this region that Mark says. In Hebrew, there's a word gerush, which means expelled. So if you know the book of Joshua, when God's people enter the land, there are seven pagan Canaanite nations that are living there that God says are expelled. They're expelled out of the land. In fact, Stephen, when he is telling the story of this, says, following the 40 years in the desert, this is in Acts, God expelled the seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. So for God's people to have their inheritance, the pagans had to be expelled. The word for expel is Gerush, the Gerashines. So by the time of the first century, the capitalists is that faraway place. It's the land of the expelled ones, the Gerashines. That's where they live. That place that's unclean, evil, demonic. And so to any faithful Jew living on the northern shore of Galilee, you weren't even allowed to utter the word Decapolis. So you just said the other side or a faraway country. And certainly no Jewish kid growing up over there would ever think about coming over here. So when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, and that boat is making its way, and it's, uh, wait, where are we going? Jesus, where are we going? We're not supposed to go there. And I can just hear him whispering amongst each other. Is he crazy? And then what happens? They get halfway over here and a storm. And I know what they're thinking. This thing's snake bitten. And then add their worldview to that storm. I mean, it's gone dark. They're on the sea. In their worldview, that's the abyss, the home of the spiritual forces of darkness. And that abyss now awakens and is unleashing 
its fury against them, they're terrified. But also the sleeping giant in the boat awakens and he stands up in that boat and he looks that storm in the eyes and he says, shut up! And that storm submits and there's peace. And that's foreshadowing. Now the boat gets to the shore and when these disciples are thinking, this, this can't get any worse, it does, because the moment they hit shore, this demon-possessed freak of a man, violent, bloody from cutting himself, Luke's account wants us to know that he's completely naked. But what Mark wants us to know, listen to what Mark, how Mark describes him. He says, this man lives in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart. He broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, shout, and he would cut himself with stones. This man is so marred with hell. And the moment that Jesus and his disciples, the boat lands, this, this, this freak of a man comes running at them. In the disciples' minds, everything about this scene is unkosher. The capitalist is unclean. Tombs. You're not supposed to be in tombs. That's unclean. And now this man who's demonized, in fact, the way he's described in our Bible, he has evil spirits. The Bible says he has unclean spirits. Let's talk about demons. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. In our sophisticated modern scientific understanding of things i mean i think a lot of christians today just think that this is the bible's way of explaining things like epilepsy mental illness things like that we have to be very careful that when we look at people whatever their issues or problems might be, that we don't oversimplify those things. I think our scientific worldview has done this. It has reduced every problem to take this pill, get this vaccine. But then sometimes I think in our Christian world too, some people can be oversimplistic and reduce every problem to that's a demon. That's the enemy. And what we need to know is that God's word captures the complexity of human beings. It recognizes that we are physiological creatures, that we're moral, rational, spiritual entities. And that our problems, too, are not, you can't overly sometimes just 
think it's just this or just this. A lot of times it's a combination of a lot of things. But now in saying all of that, the Bible makes it very clear that there is a Satan, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. And that dark world hates Jesus and hates people that have been made in his image. And I think the spiritual battle that's raging right now is far greater even than any of us would realize. And I think the primary characteristic of demon possession without being overly simplistic myself right now is this enormous power and yet a slave. And that's this man. They can't even keep him chained. He has enormous power. And yet he's totally a slave. And I think we also need to understand there are various degrees to this that a person doesn't have to be frothing at the mouth and cutting themselves and making themselves all bloody. If you and I make anything the Lord of our lives, that will hold mastery over us. It could be money. It could be our health. It could be a boyfriend. It could be a girlfriend. It could be beauty. If we lust after these things, we find ourselves more and more enslaved to these things. And if we sell out to anything, eventually we will become its slave. Do you feel bad for this guy? Here's what I know. I know my heart. I know my, who I am. I could so easily be this guy. Let's not forget, he's someone's son. He might be someone's brother. This is a person who's made in the image of God. Jesus made this whole trip for this one man. And I think this story sums up the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that his son left the comforts of his father and came across all worlds came to the other side he came to people who've been expelled from Eden and he came and he found you he found me in our state of total unclean Who got out of the boat? I've looked at all three of these accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is what Luke's gospel said. 
when Jesus stepped ashore, there is zero evidence that the disciples ever got out of the boat. They're not ready. It's okay. Jesus is training them, but they're not ready. They're too afraid of the Decapolis. They're not ready to go there. We're going back to Decapolis. When you fly back to Texas, when we fly back to Michigan, our world is Decapolis. Our kids go to school in Decapolis. We go to work in Decapolis. Our neighborhoods, so much Decapolis. The question is, what will we do? What will the church do? Will we follow Jesus to the Decapolis? And will we get out of the boat? There is a world of sick and hurting people who are desperate for Jesus. Verse 6, Lib, can you read it? And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, by God, do not torment me. Did you see this? I mean, this is over and over in the Gospels. Whenever someone who is demonized comes to Jesus, they fall at Jesus' feet. And they always have to say something like, I know who you are. I know who you are. And the only thing they can do is not only fall at Jesus' feet, but beg him, please, Jesus, please. Because they know who they're dealing with. What's Jesus' first words to this man? What is your name? My name is Legion. That fits, doesn't it? Rome and its legions. In fact, Rome had its sixth legion stationed here in Decapolis. You know how many soldiers are in a legion? A minimum of 2,000 soldiers. <clears throat> this man is so marred with the powers of hell. And what Jesus does here is, is, is totally unprecedented because any time in both the ancient world and the modern world, when someone performs an exorcism, they are always calling on a higher power, the name of a higher power, come out, in the name of, come out. And Jesus just looks at this man who's legion. And all he has to say is, 
just like all he has to do is say to a storm, shut up. I don't know if you remember that biblical story when God is sending plagues on Egypt. Actually, we talked about this the other day. When you asked me about this, when I say Shema, uh, my pinky, why do I hold it like this? Um, because it goes back to the story. Uh, because Pharaoh's magicians, through like the third or fourth plague, can actually mimic the plague that's done. They, they, they in a sense, are, are pretending to keep up with God. But by the time you come to about the fifth plague... Pharaoh's magicians can no longer mimic it anymore. And all they can do then is go back to Pharaoh and say, we can't duplicate this one. And this is what they say. They say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Jesus in Luke 11, verse 20 says this, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what's the kingdom of God? It's God's reign, God's realm, breaking into chaos, bringing shalom. And where does Jesus send legion? Well, in the Jewish understanding, the pig is unkosher. So Jesus takes the unclean spirit, puts it in the unclean animal, and sends the unclean into the abyss where it belongs. Liv, can you read verse 15? And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the name Legion, and they became frightened. You guys, this whole village probably knew of this man. Can you imagine the experience of coming out here? Let's just call him Brutus. Everybody knows who Brutus is. Kids, you can't please stay a long way to away from Brutus and all of a sudden you see this this Brutus in his right mind normal Jesus utterly and completely changed and transformed this man's life from the inside out In fact, the part that just moves me the most, when the villagers came and they saw him, he's dressed. Who dressed him? This man who's naked, cutting himself, who dressed him? When Jesus changes us, and transforms us. As Paul says, we are now dressed. We are dressed in his righteousness. All the shame, all the guilt, all the unclean, all turn to clean. 
خویی asking you to believe do you believe in God I'm not asking you to go to church I'm not asking you if you study the Bible I'm not asking you if you witness to your neighbor I'm asking you has he touched you has he changed you and I'll tell you what this story tells me no one is too far gone no one can make too much a mess of their life. It doesn't matter how bad your past is, how bad your presence is. If Jesus touches you, you are changed. You're normal. You're made new. Or maybe you're thinking right now of a parent or maybe a son or a daughter or someone that you love. Yet You're just like, there's no way, there's no way that God could ever reach them. I'm telling you, if he can change this man, he can change anyone. Well, maybe you're a bit skeptical right now. Maybe you're like, really? Is this easy? God can just go around and go, poof, poof. Why does he do that with everything? Poof. Because it's not that simple. At the end of Mark's gospel, we're going to see Jesus naked, bloody on a cross. We're going to see Jesus being sent into the tombs. He who knew no sin became our sin. He who is spotlessly clean became all of our unclean so that we could be the clean of Jesus. The way Jesus deals with evil is he absorbs it into himself. He basically changes pla exchanges places for this guy. All of Jesus clean is placed on this man. All of Jesus unclean is placed on Christ. That's the gospel. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in this story. Libby, can you read verse 18? And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might go with him. <laughs> entreating. The word literally is begging. Jesus, please, can I go with you? Can I be your disciple? Can I be number 13? And what does Jesus say to him, Lib? And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Do you guys see what Jesus just did? He just took the village idiot. And in a moment, completely transformed him. And turned the village idiot into his first apostle. No. You're not going to follow me. Instead, go and tell. Can you imagine this guy? When his friends saw him? Dude, what happened to you? <gasps> what happened? The townspeople? Oh my, what? Mom and Dad, I'm home. <gasps> Can you imagine this? I'll tell you what changes the capitalists. It's not sermons. It's not formulas. It's a life transformed by Jesus Christ. Do you have a story? Do you have a story to tell? About how Jesus Christ has touched you and changed you? Do you tell your story? Why are we as Christians so private? Why are we so almost embarrassed about our past or when our life drifted way, way away from God? Or when our life was, was in this place that was so removed from God? Why are we embarrassed about that? That's our story. I once was lost, but now I've been found. I once was blind, but now I see. Parents, tell your kids your story. Tell your grandkids your story. That's why we, when we were in Timnah, story that we're all blessed with. In my mind, I'm thinking, that's the finger of God. God touched me. Let's tell each other our stories. Let's tell our neighbors our stories, not in obnoxious ways, in natural ways. That's what's going to change the capitalists.